0: I have a theory that displacement is not strictly a terrible thing. While there is undeniable loss, being thrust out of place can build resilience and create opportunities to reimagine ourselves between the ground and the sky. I often consider this when reflecting on the relationship between Black communities and cities. Ours is a complex story defined by ongoing systemic marginalization, hope, and invaluable contribution. When people think of black communities and cities, images of despair are often evoked. Enslaved or low-wage workers digging city roads, vertical poverty and isolation, mothers in the streets wailing for justice with their sons' blood on the hems of their dresses. It is also true that cities have been symbols of hope. The light at the end of the Underground Railroad, places of refuge, and a symbol of opportunity. Amid these dissonant realities, the ways Black communities have contributed to the city's culture, vernacular, and prosperity have mostly been unacknowledged. This place-based tension has always existed for us here. But something is changing. There's a beautiful emergence of black urbanists. We're not simply responding to the ways our lives have been historically shaped by urban centers. We're using our stories and expertise to collectively shape more inclusive cities. We're drawing on our distinct experiences of intergenerational displacement to not only reimagine ourselves within urban spaces, but to challenge the very tenets of urban design. We're asking uncomfortable questions and leading future focused conversations because we've felt the impact of silences and erasure. We're deeply committed to co creating a future city where everyone thrives.
1: This is Spacing Radio. Voici votre espace radio.
0: Welcome to Pride and Place, a special Black History Month episode of Spacing Radio, the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. I'm Jay Pitter, an author and placemaker. My practice is focused on spatial design and social justice. I'll be your host. In this episode, we'll travel across Canada, featuring Black urbanists from Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto
2: you know i grew up in a social housing community on the northwest end of the city close to the intersection of steels and islington and in that community We didn't really have a lot of access to some of the traditional things that you would think sort of compose a very strong neighborhood. So myself and and my neighbors and and my siblings sort of used the things that we had around us to sort of create play spaces for us. We turned things like uh, communication boxes that you have in certain communities, we turned that into uh, what was a podium for instance. And that podium became the teacher's podium when we were playing teacher in the neighborhood. So you could sort of see how bars in the neighborhood would become benches and we turned that into sort of seating arrangements. Parks that weren't really parks became open spaces and community gathering places as well. So you could sort of see opportunities to transform those places into really usable things for communities that that needed them but didn't have them in a formalized way.
0: Haban Ali has translated play and her childhood ability to see what wasn't there to her work as an urban planner. In addition to the built form and space, there are other absences.
2: Certainly, I, I felt that there's not a great deal of diversity in terms of ethnic diversity in the planning profession. But I I am much more hopeful that that's sort of changing. Uh, In the last year or so, many young students have been contacting me to sort of talk about planning and entering the planning profession. Students have been undergraduate students, but also graduate students. And the stories are sort of always the same. They've sort of said, you know, we were looking at different companies that are operating here in Toronto. We came across your company, saw you on the website in a a face of, of 60 other people, and you really intrigued us. Uh, and we wanted to sort of reach out to you to sort of see if we can have a conversation about what your experience has been like. And they're really sort of choosing me out of the group of other people that you see on, the, on our website and sort of saying, we identify with you and, and feel we would be a little bit more comfortable having a conversation with you about what it's been like for you. And having a you know an open dialogue about some of the challenges that you might have felt uh, coming into this profession and what it might have been like. So it's been really rewarding for me to sort of have those conversations and to feel like I'm... Uh, being a part of opening doors for other people that are interested in coming into this profession overall. Um, And I I love the fact that they're saying that. They're sort of saying it was because you were black that I I asked you to have this meeting. or It's because I saw that you're a woman who's wearing a hijab and I would like to have this conversation with you. Um, And I, I love that people feel comfortable saying that that's the reason why they're reaching out to me as well. You know, one of the things that I've been really thinking about over the last little while is, you know, if we're really thinking about how we can increase the level of diversity that we have in the planning professional, and start thinking about what does a multicultural city look like, or what does exclusive cities look like, part of that really means engaging a new generation of planners to be a part of this conversation, and so trying to think about ways that we can actually do that, um, I think needs to be much more sort of talked about, and much more dialogue needs to happen in that, in that arena.
3: One of the things is I think history has been something that's been something that I've considered a lot lately. Part of it is myself, my own story, but then you realize that there are so many other stories. It's important that we discover those stories, that we take the time to seek out that knowledge and the research to say, wait a second, what's here? What are the values in this building? Does this building share stories? Is there stories that haven't been told?
0: Tora Cousins Wilson is an architect who centered personal narrative, honor, and legacy in the redesign of a house once owned by his beloved grandmother. I chatted with him recently about this very personal design process.
3: Yeah, one thing that I found really touching was um, some of her letters and there were letters between her and other family members. Um, so her siblings; she was one of thirteen kids. Wow! And it was touching to see my grandmother beyond just being my grandmother. I kind of knew her as an older lady. She would cook meals for me. She'd, right,
0: and a convers- Caribbean grandma. Yeah, a Jamaican grandma. Mm-hmm. A Jamaican. Yeah. And so lots of authority. <laughs> yeah. Was and she a mama?
3: She was a mama, and. So on that level, before finding some of these, these artifacts, I, I had only known her on that level. And then sort of finding these letters was very touching because I, I saw her beyond just as grandmother, just as, as a woman making life in the city, which, which was moving, and it was, just, it, was, it was opening to me. One of the letters that stood out to me was a letter from her father, so my great-grandfather, and it was a letter thanking her for sending money and mm. that he, would u- he was using that to pay for things in Jamaica. Right. And that, that to me was quite touching from, from the lens of not only just supporting herself but then sending money back home to support her father. And it was, and it was just something that I had never – it was a simple thing but something I had never pictured. And I never s- sort of thought of my grandmother also being a daughter – And also being someone, a daughter, who was then supporting family back home.
0: Right, right. And yet, she managed to purchase a house in the city.
3: Two. Two? (laughs) Two houses.
0: Wow. Can you tell us about that?
3: Well, yeah, so she owned a house, um, well, two houses in area now commonly known as Leslieville. So the East End. Pape and Queen area, um, a house on, on Brooklyn Avenue and another house on Galt Avenue.
0: And she was able to purchase those houses on her salary as a domestic worker?
3: It, yeah, she was a hustler. Right, I, um, yeah. I know that part of being able to afford it was being scrupulous in terms of saving and also renting, renting out. So her house is as a means to generate income
0: so now, what house did you uh, end up redesigning?
3: Both houses were a three-minute walking distance apart. And the house that my mother grew up in, she, my grandmother, had decided to to sell that one. Um, it was after the passing of her son, my mother's brother, my uncle, which is a very unfortunate thing. And I think after that, she, there was, I think there was she said there was a, there a lot of duppies in the house.
0: Got it. and, and which, <laughs> <laughs> which would mean
3: ghost, right? She felt yeah, the, home was the, home, the home was haunted. The I home mean, was haunted. The home was haunted. There's certain all, times I would just say, Granny, red. okay, come on, Granny. All, and,
0: listen, all old black ladies think there's duppy in the house. Yeah. And, <laughs> yes,
3: absolutely. But I think it was also just partly um, pragmatically at a certain age is managing two houses became a bit difficult and so she moved in she spent the last 10 12 years of her life no probably more probably about 15 years of her life in the house um, that i renovated with my mother it's it was it was a very special process i mean on multiple levels so i'd say on one level having the opportunity to have your own house in Toronto in a city that is so expensive as it is right now, um, that's a very privileged privileged position to be in. Right. The so on that on that level is just just the gratitude and fortune of you know my grandmother's legacy right. and continuing it. And then there's my, both my mom and I agreed you know, we're not flipping Granny's house.
0: <laughs> right, right. It's Mama would not no. like that.
3: No, so. <laughs> On that level, then on the on another level of being an architect and having the opportunity to to shape your own space, I think everyone likes that to some degree, whether it's their own room, their own apartment. But then, as an architect, there's that there's that extra um, oomph to that. Um, so it was it was a very special time doing that.
0: What is one of your favorite design features or approaches you added to your grandmother's home?
3: What was difficult for me in the beginning, especially because the house had so much of a history to it um, and, and a lot of meaning, right. it, as it was my, my grandmother's house, was how to, how to sort of showcase her legacy and also just the memories that I had there or my mother had there. And in a lot of ways, as much as it was a touching and memorable house, it was beat up. <laughs> right. So I think it was how to sort of take that legacy and those memories when working when having to really gut the house. So the main design feature on that was creating a void. And a void which I cut a hole through one of the floor the second floor so there's a double height space so I opened up which was her bedroom became a void in the house and it was a room that I spent most of the time when I was there with her it was in her in her bedroom and her kitchen which was on the second floor and the idea behind that was in creating a void I could sort of evoke a degree of memory of that space even though there was nothing there.
0: So you created this void to create space for her memory to live?
3: Yeah, that's, that's exactly, exactly it. Ultimately, it's, and I, for me, it's architecture should be people first. We're, you're ultimately designing for people and for the function of human activity. So honoring human stories and human narratives, and human activity is is vital to the design of buildings and the design of our cities.
4: Hi, I'm Stephanie Allen. I'm the vice president of project planning and partnerships at Catalyst Community Development Society. We are a nonprofit uh, real
5: estate developer. I am Antonia Ogundele. I manage environmental sustainability and disaster planning at Van City Credit Union, and uh, I'm an engaged citizen.
0: Hello, Black women. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, thank you. I was recently on a conference call with a couple of spirited Vancouver based city builders.
5: And I I think, um, you know, coming to Vancouver and having been to other major cities, it is definitely very different in that as a Black person in Vancouver, there are very few of us. And it's quite a small population. And when you look at the black experience in the urban context and how we interact with people socially, there's quite a bit of uh, hostility at times in the form of either microaggressions or just great ignorance on how to interact with, you know, the black community. And I find, again, when it comes to urban planning and urbanism, it shapes how we see about the city, how we understand space, how we see ourselves in space, and how we see ourselves contributing to the development of the urban fabric or even creating spaces where people are able to interact in an equitable, safe, and accessible manner.
4: You know, it's interesting. My experience is a little different. I've been a real estate developer for just over 15 years, and I've worked in Kelowna, Edmonton, Calgary, Arizona, and Vancouver. And I have been the minority professionally everywhere. I've become very accustomed to navigating my particular field and industry and professional spaces, being the only black person and sometimes being the only woman. And so what I found was that, professionally speaking, my particular lived experience was often not represented at the table when uh, real estate development in that industry, when we're building housing and we're building spaces in the urban environment.
0: Antonia and Stephanie are now applying their expertise to a crucial moment in Vancouver's urban development. In the 1960s, Hogan's Alley was a prominent Black community. However, it was displaced during the construction of the Georgia Viaduct. Stephanie and Antonia are working with other city builders to redress this injustice.
4: Jay, what's really exciting about the Hogan's Alley initiative that we're undertaking is that it starts from the beginning. We look at a community of Black people that lived in Vancouver that had a pretty robust presence here, and that it was destroyed under Urban Renewal, the CMHC program that occurred across Canada to allow cities to create infrastructure. Unfortunately, those tools were leveraged against poor and racialized communities, and they came after the Black community in Vancouver first. And through many civic policies that ultimately led to the displacement of this community and the construction of this piece of elevated freeway, it's it's kind of ended up in this position in Vancouver where there is such a low number of black folks. We know from, from data that immigrants go where immigrants are. And because the black community was uprooted from this place, we have this very significantly low percentage of the population that is black in Vancouver. Actually, one of the lowest in Canada's top 10 major cities. But the initiative that's exciting why we're excited now is because the city of Vancouver is redeveloping this area. And a few of us got together and said this is a prime opportunity for the city of Vancouver to redress this displacement and provide the kinds of amenities we're talking about in this conversation that we don't have through
5: this redevelopment. This project offers an opportunity for us to create a cultural center, a public space where we're able to share our history, share spaces for arts, culture, and capacity building. And on top of that, what we have asked and put forward in terms of an intention to the city is for it to be held in community land stewardship. So that's really looking at how those that occupy the space and even in adjacent communities can go about designing and developing a, um, a space that recognizes and honors the history of the Black community that was there, as well as making sure that it's accessible and it's inclusive and offers secured land tenure for people that live there so that they do not face the same displacement that has happened in the past and in fact continues right now in the city of Vancouver you know what we're doing to what we call
4: disrupt the typical process of planning Definitely. is really to expand the notion of engagement and allow more people under the tent than typically participate in the planning and development process we've found that we need to create literacy for the average person who shows up to these engagement processes so they understand what they're looking at they understand what it means when we talk about FSR or, you know, heights and densities, form and character. This is the the language of architects and developers, but we need to bring that down to the accessible scale so that people actually understand what it means. And going even further, our our intention and in our, in our petition to the city is that the housing is affordable to people on ordinary income. It will do no good to surround an African diaspora cultural center with condos that are out of reach for the average citizen. So we have been very intentional in making this a holistic look at city building so that it's not just diversity by numbers, but it's diversity that's being led by people who are typically marginalized so that centering their experiences actually informs the process going forward as a primary resource and not as an
5: afterthought. And I'll add to what Steph has said. We're really taking uh, a direction of and language of co-creation. Right? So typically cities engage in processes where they come to different communities, ask for feedback, go away, and then come up with designs and ask us, do we like it or do we not? And what we've done here with our project is that we've created a space where there is a symbiosis between the city within community to be able to reimagine what that space could be. And I think what also offers, again, uniqueness to this project is that As members of the Black community really leading this work, there's no having to think about it needing to be intersectional in approach. We consider all of the, um, we consider poverty, we consider colonialism, we consider anti-Black racism, we consider racism in general. And so all of that goes into how we go about approaching and engaging in this work.
4: I would love to end on a call to action around having affordability and supporting Not only the Hogan Valley Initiative, if you're in Vancouver, but supporting initiatives by people that are not centered in the urban conversation. People of Indigenous heritage, people of racialized groups, people with disabilities. Let's center them. If you're an urbanist, you need to center those people. Those are the people that need to be head of the table. Because when we build cities around their needs, we build cities around the needs of the people who've been excluded. Everyone, as a result, will benefit.
1: We're going to do
5: now something that has nothing to do with an arranged piece of music or a setup, so far as our attitude is concerned.
0: If the contemporary city had a mixtape, it would include several hip-hop tracks. Hip-hop and electronic artist Matthew Progress explores the place-based significance of this powerful musical genre.
6: Uh, yeah, I would say much like jazz and punk and specifically those two genres, hip-hop, comes from urban centers. There's a DIY energy behind it. It's a genre of music and a form of expression that's been cultivated organically by folks who are largely disenfranchised but brilliant and trying to figure out, you know, maybe not even intentionally trying to figure out, but just through existing, uh, create this beautiful like medium and genre of music. So hip-hop classically has been not just about those directly involved in it who are creating like hip-hop content like music or dancing or DJs or graffiti artists. It's also the larger community around those people. So that might be, you know, elders or children or, you know, peers who aren't necessarily involved in creating art but who are just coming to the party. And that means that a block party has to have food and childcare and has to accommodate the greater community. And it's about providing opportunities to network and come together and build businesses and build collectives and not just to socialize collectively, but to build further place and further community together.
0: For many outside of the black community, hip hop's role in community building isn't always obvious and it isn't always talked about. As a place based art form.
6: And in fact, place is what informs our sub genre groupings in hip hop. So, like, our sub genre groupings in hip hop are regional. So, you have like Southern Bound, so you have like West Coast hip hop, which is like has a very specific sonic arrangement, but then also the imagery is very specific. It's, it's a lot more talk of, the scene of L.A. and like what L.A. looks like as opposed to New York East Coast hip-hop which speaks a lot more to stacked concrete and different architecture and different climate and that informs the sound and the words.
0: Given that we're both from Toronto I asked Matthew to share his thoughts on the essential Toronto sound and vernacular.
6: I think the culture and dialect attached to Toronto based hip hop the way that young people speak in the city is particularly unique and it's something that I, a lot of people will probably have different perspectives on but in my perspective the sort of street level language of Toronto has three main influences uh, one being New York Ebonics so words like whack or I, or stuff like that. I mean, those are, that's just two examples, which are very classic. And then the other thing being West Indian influence. A lot of us are first-generation children from West Indian parents who have come here and brought with them West Indian Patois, particularly Jamaican, that has very much made its way into regular slang on the street. So words like still, like ending a sentence with still, Or like, you don't know, or different, very Jamaican-sounding Toronto slang words that like non-West Indian people might not even know have that background, but very much do. And anyone Jamaican or Trini knows that, or Guyanese, etc. And then the third thing being very rural Canadian, white, Accent, And that's just like your classic Canadian accent, how you pronounce your abouts a boot or how you're saying ours. It's sort of like a Canadian rural droll. And to me, the marriage of those three things could describe a Toronto slang accent and vernacular. I am a GMO. I'm like Edgar Allan Poe. I was born listening to Wynton Marsalis blow. I'm Malcolm X in the Triple X talent show, tattooing my name on your chest in a palindrome. Witnessing death on a quest to the balance dough with an acid tab, asking them questions that Alice knows. I had professors with lectures, I challenge those. Sequestered the realest lessons from Texas to Allen Road. Depression and violence grows. It's undeniable. This is dirty money, elegance, Eskiment, hydro. Come and step into my flesh, pay respect to my Bible. That's Yeezy Basquiat, Andre Benjamin, fly low. I'm an optimist prime mode with the sixth chakra third eye hole. I write witch doctor shrine poems. The body reaps what the mind sows. The money peaks when the grinds slow. I was 20 leagues in the cosmos. I was 20 deep at a Nas show. I'm a Sun Rye clone. I'm a 44 caliber mag gun shot to your Ross hall. Peace to the gods though. Poor righteous teachers bring the streets to the gospel.
1: In Canada, we often talk about two solitudes, the Anglophones and the Francophones. But when you are Black and French speaking in Quebec, we fall into a third solitude, and we are forgotten by the Anglophone Black communities. Community organizer
0: and documentarian Will Prosper aptly describes what he's coined as the country's third solitude. He goes on to unpack its complexity.
1: There's like three important conversations in Quebec. They talk about the independence. That's number one and first and foremost. Then there is the language, French, which is something that they want to protect. And then there's the question of identity, and we never fall in any of these categories most of the time. So we're always in the back end of the conversation. And what is, really, uh, what is really troubling is that, you know, when we see what's going on in the rest of the country, we are never part of this conversation because we are francophone.
0: It's uncomfortable, but my friend Will challenges me to reflect on this double exclusion not just outside, but within our black communities. He goes on to share an instance of this
1: happening. And there's so many people that are doing that. There was the uh, Black Federation that had a meeting in Toronto. And it was conducted by the Michael Jean Foundation. And she is also uh, the uh, president of the... uh, African uh, Francophone Association, I can't remember what's the exact name, but when I went to that meeting over here in Toronto, there was no uh, translation in French. And we had plenty of French people coming over. And what happens with them is that they cannot have a conversation with people in English because you have to develop some kind of language skill, as you can say, to tackle certain words that not everybody has. So there's a divide that was created And it felt like they were not competent enough to have this conversation with other people from the rest of the country just because there was a lack of translation. Sometimes I had to translate uh, stories from uh, some of our colleagues from Quebec to other colleagues in uh, Toronto. And for me, you know, it's a huge issue that we need to work on, you know, because this divide is actually affecting uh, people being not uh, up to par with everybody else although they are as talented as everybody else.
0: It's disheartening to think that French-speaking Black communities in Montreal are facing these complex dimensions of exclusion. And having witnessed Hoodstock, a community initiative combining arts, informative panels, and social planning, I can tell you that these communities more than measure up.
1: Yeah, we have plenty of initiatives and you have, you have to understand it's grassroots initiative. It's initiatives in one of the poorest riding, the design of Montreal North, especially this northeast uh, part of the city. It's like a concrete jungle. It's apartment block over apartment blocks over apartment blocks. And we have initiative that will fight uh, digital exclusion because in a place like Montreal North, it's one of the poorest riding. And people don't have access to Wi-Fi. But when you go downtown, people with money, they have access to free Wi-Fi. So let's give free uh, Wi-Fi to everybody in the neighborhood. That's what we're trying to do. We also have a health desert. We have doctors refusing to go and treat patients because they feel it's too difficult to deal with people coming from uh, uh, diversity. So what we want to do is the opposite. We want to have a cultural sensitive uh, practices uh, in a clinic that we, we are trying to work on building in Montreal North. And we also have a third aspect that we're working on also is that, you know, we often fulfill that we have an exclusion from the arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of investment in arts are being conducted in downtown once again you have la place des arts you have all these shows you have uh, festival de jazz you have all these different great things that we have in montreal we, we don't even have something like that in montreal north so so we don't have anything that we can associate ourselves with you know and you have what is the symbol of montreal north and it's hard for me to tell you what's the symbol of montreal north except for the people of montreal north i think that's, that's the strongest symbol and for me you know And for us in Hoodstock, you know, that's why we're investing ourselves in people. And we want to make sure that we treat or we talk about the heart and cultural aspect. So we're trying to develop a program with hip-hop, with dance, also with graffiti artists. So we're bringing this wealth of knowledge and we're trying to bring the youth in what they already love and make them love that even more so they're going to love what they're doing in school at the end of the day. So that's what we're trying to do. So we're actually achieving uh, perseverance, uh, developing skills that will help them with whatever they do in the future.
0: Hoodstock exemplifies the resilience and innovation black urbanists often bring to city building. I asked Will to expand on the strength that so many of us growing up in the margins have managed to cultivate.
1: I love what you just mentioned also because sometimes lots of people, you know, that will make it out of Montreal North, we say, you know, once you come out of Montreal North, you come out stronger. But it's better when we say it in French because une fois qu'on sort de Montréal-Nord, on en sort plus fort. So, you know, and what it means is that, you know, with everything that you're faced, with all these different oppression, you have to be stronger to get out of there. And you'll be better than everybody else, and you have an understanding of what uh, people are facing because it will be your neighbor, it will be yourself, it will be different patient, uh, people, and you understand what is suffering, and you'll want to fight against that. <laughs>
0: And as black urbanists, the fight isn't just to improve the lives of people within our cultural communities. Our lived experiences have made us attuned to intersecting forms of marginalization, such as class, gender, sexual identity, and ability. We're dedicated to applying our expertise and hard-earned insights to help co-create cities where everyone thrives.
7: Thanks for listening. It was a pleasure collaborating with author and placemaker Jay Pitter for this special episode. If you liked it, please tell fellow city builders, municipal decision makers, and perhaps your neighbor. If you rate, share, or subscribe on iTunes, it will help us reach new listeners. Jay and I made this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track 82, that's all one word. This episode also featured the track Sip Test by Matthew Progress, produced by Dan Only, you can find it on Matthew's EP, Slumber Magic War, available on streaming platforms and iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at spacingradio, that's all one word, or email me, glennbowerman at spacing.ca, that's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca, or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. This episode was made with the generous contribution of OCAD University. Thank you, OCAD.
0: And thank you to our guests, Haban, Torah, Stephanie, Antonia, Matthew, and Will. Exceptional city builders.